Today we're going to conclude the last piece in the corpus of wisdom literature. And this is the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. The literal title is Song of Songs of Solomon. Okay, And uh, when you have a construction like Song of Songs, it essentially means the superlative song. So this is the way that the Hebrew expresses superlatives. And thus, for example, you have the Holy of Holies, which is the superlative holy place, or oftentimes called the uh, most holy place, or the holiest place. Okay, So this is uh, the, the best <laughs> of Solomon. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it is of Solomon. Okay, the Hebrew can be that it's the best song to Solomon, dedicated to him, or the best song about Solomon. So we don't really know if Solomon is the author of this. Okay, um, but uh, he could be because First uh, Kings chapter four verse thirty-two says that Solomon wrote a thousand and five songs, and if that's the case, then this is his best one. And uh, beside that, it's a love song, and he was certainly an expert lover <laughs> with 700 wives and 300 concubines, I would assume. Okay? So, uh, this is considered wisdom literature, even though it's a distinctive type. It's kind of a love song, and it's a poetic exchange between a lover and his beloved. Okay? And more specifically, between uh, those who are newly married, newlyweds, okay? uh, a bride and a bridegroom, um, that poetic exchange between them. And it is wisdom literature because you remember that wisdom literature seeks to give instruction for healthy, even successful living of life. And this is instruction then for the living out of married life, of the life um, of husband and wife, of being spouses, uh, including the sexual relationship in that context. Okay, And um, so the real primary purpose, I think, here as a piece of wisdom literature is to instruct by modeling, modeling the beauty of marital love. Okay. And so it is a beautiful poem. Maybe the reason why it's called the best of the best. Okay, A beautiful love poem uh, to model here for us the beauty of marital love. And uh, those of us who um, are married uh, no doubt can attest to the beauty of that gift that God gives to us in a spouse and the blessing of marriage, um, one of the greatest blessings that he gives to us without a question. Okay, so uh, that is its purpose here. And um, uh, however, uh, there have been some who have questioned whether this book should even be in the scriptures at all, in the biblical canon. 
uh, way back in uh, the um, uh, early part of the identification of the canon, uh, Old Testament canon among the Jews, uh, the Council of Jamnia, there was dispute whether or not this book should be even included as sacred scripture. Okay? Uh, part of that was because it was felt it was too erotic, uh, too steamy uh, to be considered as sacred scripture. And uh, that makes puritanical people <laughs> uncomfortable when they read such uh, erotic material here. Uh, I mean, you've got kissing and lovey-dovey talk and uh, running through meadows chasing each other and uh, fondling one another and so forth. And uh, uh, so that was questionable. Another reason why it was questioned as scripture is because there's no mention of God. Okay? Uh, it doesn't seem very spiritual at all. And yet, uh, much of wisdom literature is focusing on the horizontal relationships. And there's no more primary horizontal relationship than that between husband and wife. And so I'm thankful for uh, God's gift to us in this uh, book of the Bible included in sacred scripture uh, as that piece that models the beauty of marital love. Okay. Uh, there are some um, stylistic characteristics of this book. And if you want to turn to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, this is oftentimes also called Canticles, kind of the Latinized title of it, Canticles for Songs. Um, and uh, turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5, and you see one of the stylistic characteristics here is that of erotic suspense, okay, or romantic suspense. Um, where you have a, a very romantic, uh, almost steamy scene here uh, in anticipation of the wedding and uh, then of the honeymoon as well between these betrothed. Okay? And uh, notice the suspense here. Uh, this is the bride speaking. Okay? Uh, verse 2, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed within me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And so then she goes out seeking after him, trying to, to find him. But this, this kind of teasing, you know, uh, anticipation, and then opening the door, and, and he's gone. Ah. Oh. It's, it's just like what you find in the chick flicks, <laughs> you know, where you, you're, you're just hoping the couple, well, 
I'm not into chick flicks. My wife is, okay? We have to alternate, you know, alternate selections of movies and DVDs we bring, bring back. She gets a choice, I get a choice. Uh, when I choose, it's typically more adventure films, you know, uh, uh, lots of explosions and that kind of thing. Uh, when she chooses, it's the romantic uh, chick flick types, okay? And uh, I've kind of identified the uh, genre of the chick flick here with this romantic suspense that just when you think the two are going to get together, then something gets in the way and, and you wonder, will they get together or not? Well, that's what we see here also in Song of Songs. Okay, um, another very, very uh, significant stylistic characteristic of this piece is the what we'd call comparative descriptions or are the comparative descriptions. Uh, this is where in poetic language uh, expressions of affection, uh, even body parts, are described in, in very picturesque uh, symbolic ways, but they're compared. Um, uh, both the um, body parts and the um, erotic or sexual uh, behavior is compared to uh, various um, organic or inorganic uh, entities as symbols. And so here we have in uh, chapter 7 an, uh, a classic example, uh, beginning with verse 7. Okay. Um, well, you can begin with verse 8. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Okay. And this is the, the bridegroom speaking. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Okay, so the, the comparison there with the garden and uh, the delights of a garden here are uh, made. Um, so it's very, very romantic and picturesque stuff. So, fellas, you would do well to uh, uh, get into the mode of Song of Solomon here. Uh, it will help make you much more romantic, <laughs> and uh, that can never hurt for us. Okay. Um, okay, some other significant characteristics of the Song of Songs here. Um, it is given without commentary, okay? It's, it's just these, this dialogue between the groom and the bride, okay? And their um, beautiful words to one another. And so there are various interpretations, uh, specifically because it is very poetic in terms of its language. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, there, there are many, many varieties of interpretations to it. We're going to look at the two most significant here shortly. Uh, there's this poetic and very intimate language that is appropriate for uh, love songs, love poems here. Okay, uh, Very picturesque symbolic language, and very significantly, it is the probable source from the Old Testament for a very important 
image used in the New Testament, and that is of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. We find this already in the Old Testament elsewhere other than uh, Song of Songs. Uh, We'll see it as we get into the prophetic literature that um, uh, already even in the book of Kings where there's a lot of focus on the covenant, there is the association between uh, Yahweh as the husband and Israel as the bride. And this will be play-acted very dramatically, for example, in the life of Hosea the prophet, who um, marries a prostitute and cares for her and nurtures her and so forth and seeks her out when she uh, goes um, out into the red light district again. And the imagery here is that of Yahweh, who has established this covenant like a marriage covenant with his people, and yet his people, uh, like a, a, a loose woman, are uh, going out and, uh, um, as the prophets will say, a whoring after other gods. Um, the, the fulfillment of this is really expressed then in the New Testament. You think of such uh, uh, passages as Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul speaks about uh, the responsibilities and roles of husbands and wives. And he says that that marriage relationship is a mystery, but it's actually simply a representation of a greater reality, and that is the relationship between Christ and his church. Okay? And then certainly in the book of Revelation, you see a lot of the imagery of Christ as the bridegroom uh, coming for his bride. Come away with me, my love, uh, the, the bride. He comes for the bride and, and delivers her from her oppressors. So uh, the imagery is one that is developed uh, later on in Scripture. Okay, what are the, the options for interpretation? As I said, they, there are many, but two primary ones. And uh, I would not say that these are mutually exclusive here. Uh, the first is the literal interpretation. And what I mean by this is this is literally a love song between a bride and bridegroom, between uh, a wife and a husband, and models literal marriage and the blessing and the beauty of that relationship, okay? And uh, so models for us how we are to esteem and value the, the spouse that God gives to us as a gift and love one another and also an esteem and value the, the gift of our sexuality and uh, the, the beauty and delight of, of sharing in that one flesh union Uh, that God intends for husbands and wives. Uh, The second option here is the more allegorical one. (coughs) And again, this is oftentimes taken by those who uh, believe that it's insufficient simply to have the literal uh, interpretation that that's not spiritual enough. And so the allegorical one reads into uh, this whole uh, song here, uh, the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, and then for, for us in the New Testament, Christ and his church. Okay. And uh, I think that they're both 
viable. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, I think at the primary level, we see it as uh, a literal model of uh, marital love and fidelity to one another, uh, expressing in the, the beauty of that relationship. But then also, uh, because the Holy Spirit makes this um, analogical connection, metaphorical connection, uh, that we can too. He doesn't specifically do so here in the Song of Solomon, but elsewhere in Scripture he does. And so we can see this at least as an illustration of the relationship between God and his people. Okay? So, um, that's the Song of Songs. Um, And uh, as a pastor, I have to say that uh, I can't recall ever preaching on this (laughs) book. It's not in the lectionary, unfortunately, or at least it hasn't been, um, for regular uh, divine service um, during the, the, the weekend, but uh, certainly I have preached on it um, in wedding sermons, okay, wedding messages, and uh, even funeral uh, sermons. There's one passage which speaks about love being stronger than death, and uh, that's a great, great passage for it's one that's oftentimes been used historically, traditionally, for some funerals, uh, how God's love uh, conquers even death. So um, uh, it's, it's, I think, a, a worthy inclusion in the canon. Okay, so, so much for Song of Songs. Now we turn back to 1 Kings, okay? So the, the uh, book of the Bible that we'll be especially focusing on now is First and Second Kings, First and Second Kings, and we now take a look at the divided kingdom, the division of what had been one kingdom under Saul, then David, then Solomon is now divided into two, and this will carry us through the rest of First Kings and Second Kings. So from First Kings chapter twelve through. Second Kings. The time frame is approximately 200 years, okay, from about 921 or 922 to 721 or 722, okay, and uh, sometimes the exact date, it's hard to get precision on these, so yeah, you're going to read uh, various dates identified that might alternate between uh, one or the other giving a within a year latitude. And the reason for this is that um, um, in, when you come to ancient history, it's oftentimes hard to date things precisely, especially this far back in ancient history. Uh, most of this has to be correlated with um, extra-biblical evidence that we have uh, for the Old Testament here at this time frame. It's especially the Assyrian annals, um, but then also uh, the Babylonian and the Persian uh, chronicles and and history records. These have to be correlated to, okay? So we'll see uh, Solomon's death around uh, 922, 921, and uh, then the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel 
around 722-721. Okay, but here it begins in 1 Kings chapter 12. So we we finished up um, last time with the kingdom of Solomon, uh, which saw the uh, union of Israel and Judah, all 12 tribes, okay, uh, united into one federal entity. No longer a confederacy of tribes, uh, more a tribal amphictyony, but a union and a federation. Okay. Um, but we also saw that Solomon, in order to push forward his building projects, conscripted Israelites, uh, people of the, the various tribes, but primarily from the northern tribes here. The conscription was especially heavy upon them, okay, and uh, put them into forced labor, okay. Now, these are not slaves, uh, and they are put into uh, this uh, forced labor for only a, a portion of the year. It's not continually that they are uh, made to work without pay, but um, this was quite a burden. And, and for Judah, uh, that tribe, it was comparatively less than for the northern uh, tribes here. And this became a very, very heavy burden upon the people. Uh, this illustrates here kind of the policy that uh, out of every, every third month, uh, uh, the people were conscripted to work for the king and for his uh, building projects. So you would have two months for yourself and then a third month working for the king. Uh, in addition, though, these other months where you would be working for your own livelihood, you were still taxed <laughs> and very, very heavily for the work that you did during those months. And so there was this uh, submission to the king that became a very heavy burden upon the people. So um, what we have then is the division between the kingdoms, uh, the north and the south, upon the death of Solomon. And essentially then what you'll have up here are ten tribes, Remember that the Levites are pretty much spread throughout all the territory here. Uh, but there are 12 tribes, two of which are considered half-tribes, the half-tribes of Joseph, uh, Manasseh, and Ephraim. So there are still 12 tribes that are occupying the land, or really, I guess you could say, 10 tribes and two half-tribes, and then the tribe of Levi. Essentially... Um, you've got ten tribes in this territory, okay, the northern half. Uh, one tribe, Judah down here, and Benjamin becomes essentially assimilated into Judah. Do you remember at the end of the book of Judges, uh, the tribe of Benjamin is almost decimated, okay? And um, so now Benjamin, whose territory had been in this area, becomes pretty much assimilated into Judah. And you've got this division then between uh, really the one tribe of Judah then and these other ten tribes up to the north. How does that happen? Well, it begins under King Rehoboam. 
and Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Uh, he was designated then to become king upon Solomon's death, and he assumes that responsibility. And initially, everyone from all over the territory is willing to submit to his rule. However, in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, uh, you read about how uh, the representatives from the northern ten tribes come to Rehoboam and they say, hey, your father really laid it on us. He really uh, put a burden upon us here with this forced labor and the taxation. And uh, it, it was really an unreasonable burden. Will you give us some relief? There's a very reasonable offer here. I said, just kind of lighten up on us, please. Okay, don't carry out the same kind of policies that your father did of conscription and heavy taxation and so forth. Just, just uh, give us some relief here, and we will gladly serve you. Okay. Uh, Jeroboam says to them, well, give me three days to think about this, to get some counsel, and uh, come back. And so in those three days, he first of all meets with the elder advisors, the older advisors, some of those who had been advisors of Solomon. And these men, remember Solomon originally practiced great wisdom. Uh, much of that left him later in his reign in, in many of his policies, especially in his turning away from the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. But many of his advisors uh, probably you know, because he originally gathered them while he was wise, demonstrates some real wisdom. And they say, what these people are asking of you is very reasonable. Okay? And if you, here starting out your reign, will oblige them, you will have them forever. They'll be eternally grateful to you. This would be a very smart first move of your monarchy here, of your rule to show this kind of care for the people. Okay? So he got that advice from the older ones. But then he also sought advice from some of his own cronies, younger guys, guys that he had been kind of, uh, you know, drinking buddies with, and uh, asks them. And uh, they take a much more hard-line approach. They say, no. Don't lighten up. That'll give the impression that you'll be a lightweight, that they'll be able to, you know, just walk over you. You'll be a pushover. You want to make a firm stand from the start and take a tough position to let them know who's really boss, who's king. Okay? So we read about this in chapter 12, if you want to take a look. Uh, chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. And he said to them, this is to the younger ones, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, 
I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Okay. Well, it wasn't the most uh, warm way of uh, um, responding to these people's reasonable request. And that is, in fact, the advice that he takes. It's the message that he delivers to the representatives of the ten tribes when they come back three days later. And um, the response is devastating. Okay, And you read that in verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. So they say, Fooey to you, you know, and to your Davidic line, Davidic dynasty, okay, O son of David, descendant of David, the dynastic line there, you're on your own. We're on our own. We'll go our separate ways here. Okay. And so you have then uh, this uh, great divide and a rebellion, although it's not an armed rebellion. um, And uh, Rehoboam does not seek to uh, um, enforce the union like Abraham Lincoln did during our civil war here. To, to bring back the union. He does not seek to do that by force. But now there's kind of a, if you will, a peaceful um, parting of ways between these two. So what we have now is uh, the division between the two kingdoms. The southern kingdom now is called that of Judah uh, because of the dominant tribe there of the tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel the ten tribes of of Israel. And that will be the names of these two kingdoms. Uh, Again, you began with this tribal league of 12 tribes. okay, And so now, essentially, ten of them are going with Israel and two of them going with Judah. okay. Uh, So, uh, but then the united monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon, and now the division around 922. And for Judah, it begins with Rehoboam. For Israel, it begins with Jeroboam the first. Okay? And there's a story now with Jeroboam the first. But before we get to that here, let me talk about some just general characteristics about the two kingdoms. Uh, In terms of the southern kingdom of Judah, um, characteristically now, in comparison to the northern kingdom, uh, Judah is poor. Okay? Now, there are some periods when there's some increased prosperity, but uh, never the kind of economic powerhouse that the northern kingdom is. Uh, the reason for that is primarily the poorer so- soil. Um, agricultural context here, the poorer soil. Uh, in terms of the trade, the trade can be somewhat bypassed uh, they can between Egypt and Mesopotamia by going along the sea. And, uh, and so they're essentially up in the highlands of, of, of Judah here the, doing uh, farming and agriculture and, and uh, shepherding of flocks. And uh, much of it is desert, the Negev Desert. And uh, so it's, it's just not uh, the most prosperous area 
uh, economically. Uh, politically, uh, it's very, very stable. Okay? And the reason is because of the single dynasty. You see the single color here, and we could go all the way down to 586, and it'll stay a single color. Uh, there's di uh, uh, stability in the Davidic dynasty. And uh, when the division takes place, uh, God had actually foretold this through a prophet. And he said it was only for the sake of his promise to David that Judah receives any kind of uh, uh, inheritance or existence at all. Uh, but because of that continuing line now, uh, you will have a more stable government uh, because of the, the uh, dynasty of a single line. Whereas in the northern kingdom, as we'll see here, uh, there is much greater instability and disunity. Uh, you have a number of dynasties here, a couple of fairly large ones under Omri and Jehu, uh, but a lot of assassinations going on. Those daggers and blood represent assassinations. Uh, there are also some assassinations um, uh, in this southern kingdom, but the succession is always in the, the line of, of David. Okay? Yes? I was wondering, there seems to be discrepancy on uh, the dates here, um, because in, in uh, chapter, was it, I guess, I don't know, somewhere in here, probably next time, but it says that uh, Rehoboam reigned for 17 years. And like we only have seven years in there, and I'm just wondering how that works out. Like. Okay, um, I don't know the answer to that. So, uh, can you tell me where that's specifically written? Written, and I'll look it up. Uh, Fourteen uh, twenty-one. It says Rehoboam was forty-one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem. Okay. And then it says in fifteen that. Abijam, I don't know if that's how you say it, but began to reign over Judah in the 18th year of Jeroboam. Okay, I'll take a look at that and hopefully have a reasonable response for you tomorrow on that. Okay, but that doesn't coincide here with uh, uh, what's provided here, yeah. which is only seven years. Yeah, so I'm just wondering if it's just those. Sec, like second and third dates that are off, or if consequently all of them are off. Yeah. Okay. I'll take a look at that. That's very uh, attentive of you to have caught that discrepancy. Okay. So um, one other characteristic of the Southern Kingdom is is that which regards it spiritually or religiously. Um, heretofore, the southern kingdom will be more orthodox, uh, more faithful to the covenant with Yahweh than the northern kingdom. And one of the major reasons is because of the temple. Jerusalem will be in uh, Judah's ter territory. The temple will be in Judah's territory. And um, that's where the orthodox worship takes place. And uh, we recall that uh, part of this Deuteronomistic history uh, says that when you move away from that central shrine where God has identified uh, his presence 
to be located, uh, you will fall away from him. And uh, so there's, there's uh, more faithful adherence to the covenant, but certainly not absolutely faithful. And in fact, later on, judgment will befall the southern kingdom because of its unfaithfulness to the covenant. But it goes much longer than the northern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom falls much sooner because of its unfaithfulness.